Father, we thank you to be able, for being able to come to your word this morning together as a corporate body, to lift our hearts up to you, to lift our, our church life up to you, to lift our families up to you, and to ask you to examine these things, to ask you to speak your truth into each one of these things, to ask you to help us to Please, Lord, help us to align our lives, allow us to align our church body, align our families, align our walks with you according to your truth, Father. Lord, we're not meant to be our own authority for life. We're not meant to be our own authority for what is true. We are meant to come to you as our authority for life, for relationships, for decisions, for choices and, and opportunities that we have. And, and Lord, we pray that you would align us. We pray, Lord, that you would minister to us, that you would allow your word to guide us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It, <clears throat> it's been a weekend of the extreme joys of walking with Christ and of being a church family together, for sure. We had yesterday evening the wedding of Brian and Shelby Hopkins now, uh, formerly Shelby Philpot, and, and this was after a weekend of the visitation and funeral for LaRonda Zachary and what makes these joys for me as a pastor as opposed to being extremely hard is walking through these things and being involved with these things with people who desire to walk with Christ, that are serious about following Christ. That makes all the difference in the world. It's being involved with those with whom I'm able to be involved with in an extended way, and we are able to be involved with in an extended way as a church body. You may be familiar with the fact that, that many people who want to be involved with the body of Christ, many times they only want to be involved in, at three points in their life. And, and maybe they want a little bit of religion shaken on three important moments. Those would be the birth of a child and in its dedication or many times its baptism. In their, they want to be involved in the moment of their marriage and in the moment of their funeral. Otherwise known as when someone is hatched, matched, or dispatched. <laughs> and, and it's a joy to be involved with those who are not religious but walking in these moments as a continual part of a relationship with the Lord through Christ makes all the difference in the world. And we who have experienced life without walking with Christ as well as and life with walking together with him, we wonder what it must be like to walk through these moments without him. And I've heard that again and again as I speak with Alan or with members of the family. What do people do if they don't know Christ? If their loved one did not know Christ? How do they deal with this? 
And some of you may know that, the answer to that question. It's the significance of these moments of life that remind us of how we love having him in and with us, in our lives and with us in our lives and, and, and walking through him, through his power, through his grace. We recognize how empty the important times in life would be without his significance being a part of it. How could we ever be the husband or wife that we're called to be if it weren't for the work of Christ in our lives? How could we ever walk through the valley of the shadow of death without his purpose and his presence being central in it? It's also these moments, the challenge of marriage and the loss of death that exercises our walk with him that deepens our walk with him. It's where the rubber meets the road of life like these moments that the teachings of a passage like Romans 6 prepare us for. Because it's in our workings of growing in our relationship with the Lord, functioning and practicing our relationship with the Lord, walking with him on a daily basis that empower us to be the husband and wife that we need to be, that empower us and, and grow us for those moments of tragic loss and put them in perspective. So we looked last week at the first four verses of Romans 6 where Paul answers the question that he assumes is being asked in the mind of his readers or in his detractors. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, he says. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead from the, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In perspective of this weekend of the celebration of marriage and the celebration of the homegoing of a beloved saint, we could also answer this question of shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase, we might also answer that question, by no means, because if we live a life entrapped by sin and, and have no need of it, where is our relationship and our fellowship and our walk with the Lord when the bottom falls out? Or when we're called to the high calling of being a husband or of being a wife, to someone and we have no walk with the Lord to empower us for that. So we looked last week, just a little review here, at a nece the necessary knowledge that Paul is pointing to here. <clears throat> and, and we saw this when, with the fact that he turns the corner and says, or is it the problem that you don't know? Or do you not know, he says. And the necessary knowledge within these verses is one that the sin, the sin nature is dethroned. 
that nature bent on sin under the power of sin that we are born with in our relationship with Adam, for a believer in Christ, a person that has received Christ as their Savior, a part of that exchange that has happened is that the sin nature has been dethroned. That's what Paul means when he says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. And he goes on in in the following verses to explain how how Christ died to sin. Christ Christ will never have to die again for the penalty of our sin. And in the same way, we were spiritually joined with him or baptized into that death with him and we therefore had died to the power of sin as well by, by that action. The sin nature is dethroned. And he also talks about the fact that the, a divine nature has been imparted to us. This is what he's referring to, the results of that when he talks about the purpose of this was in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The divine nature has been imparted to the follower of Christ. And it leads him to our responsibility in verse 11, and that is to live by it, to count on it. We talked about the fact that to count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, that this is <clears throat> a, an accounting term. It's a banking term. It means that as if a thousand, in the situation of maybe $1,000 has been deposited into someone's account, but until they draw off of that money, it doesn't matter. Until they write a check on it saying, you know, if that money's not there, this check is going to bounce. So I believe it's there. That's the term, type of term that he means when he says, count yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, the, 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 the sin nature can be dethroned from our life. The new nature can be imparted to us, but it won't change our lives until we count ourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Until we take action and make decisions and make moves in our lives that is based on that truth. So our responsibility is to count on it. And this brings us into verses 12 through 14, which we're looking on at, at as the steps given to us on how to count on the fact that we have died to sin and we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Where he says, therefore, which this is what therefore means. It means because of all this, this then is true. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. 
My hope is that from the three steps we see in here in Romans 6, 11 through 14, that it will help us to count on the truth of who we are in Christ. So let's just jump right into this step one that we see here. And first of all, it it kind of builds out of what Paul has talked about of this necessary knowledge. It's that we need to correctly understand the situation. And so the situation that we are looking at here, the situation that is common to all of us, is finding ourselves caught in sin. Finding ourselves acting upon or thinking upon or, or living out of what we know is not right. It's, it's that moment with our kids where we find ourselves angry and speaking out of anger again. It's that moment where we find ourselves going back to that good thing that God, is, that God created, but somehow we've taken it out of the context that he put it in in order to get something from it that we weren't meant to get from it. It could be sex, it could be food, it could be um, reading the newspaper, it it could be any of these things, but we've gone to it again and again, and it's destroying us, and it's destroying our relationships, and it's taking our life out of balance. So, So in that moment... That these are the moments that we need to stop and clearly understand what is the situation here. Correctly understand the situation. And, and, you know, it's to stop and assess what's going on. As a parent, you know, or, or you as a parent, you find yourself sometimes in these situations where um, someone has hit someone or someone has taken something from someone and it has now blown up, you know, and, and you walk into that moment and you're like, what is going on here? You know, and don't you love that how, how it's like they just want to talk about the other one. Well, he did this and he, she did this and she, you know, it, it's like nothing is, is correct about them. It's just, you know, the extremes of what's going on with the other. You know, well, here in this moment, we're stepping into the situation of ourselves. What is happening here? What is happening that I'm not growing in the way that I, I want to be, that I, I'm not hungering for God's truth in the way that I, that I should be? Or, or maybe I know that I'm going back to this sin pattern and I don't quite understand why or how this is happening. First of all, <clears throat> Uh, we need to understand that the command here in this moment, that we are commanded to stop allowing the sinful nature to reign. Okay, we've already talked about the fact that if a person has received Christ as their Savior, that, that by, by identifying with the death and resurrection of Christ as something that we need for our salvation that Paul has told us we were, that, that our sin nature was nailed to the cross with Christ and it's powerless. To, it, it, has, it does not have the same power over us as it did before we knew Christ. We've been set free from the power of that sin nature. But it's still can reign 
And Paul is telling us, don't let it rain. The command here is stop allowing it to rain. Realize it doesn't have to reign over us. It shouldn't be in a position of reigning over us. We looked at the fact last week that it's been dethroned and a new nature has been departed on us. The new, a newly empowered divine nature has been given to us. And we can choose to either allow the sin nature to reign, which is synonymous with us reigning over our lives or us living to serve ourselves. And we'll look at that uh, with a picture in, um, in a moment. But we're commanded here and reminded here that we have a responsibility to keep ourselves off of the throne of our lives, to keep from allowing that sin nature to reign. So he's saying, first of all, it doesn't have to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. Because the the first lie of the enemy is, this is just who I am. You know? It's just that old sin nature. It's It's just gonna ruin me. It's just gonna rule me. Just the way I'm made, I guess. And the truth that we were supposed to gain from those first four verses is that we've been remade. We are a new creation. We've been redeemed. I want you to see here that this assumes that we need to stop something. I appreciate the idea here that that Paul does not assume that we all have this all figured out on the first try or that we don't we aren't saved and then it's just you know sweet by and by you know and and I never have to deal with sin again you know here's the apostle Paul saying hey stop it knock it off we all got to come to this point of realizing I don't have to obey this he certainly doesn't talk to us like we should have this figured out on our own There's a need for discipleship and growth in this necessary knowledge. But you know, we have this this tendency to make excuses like, you know, I wouldn't have to vent to other people if this person wasn't such a jerk. I wouldn't have to sneak behind my parents' back if they just would understand me. I wouldn't have to yell so much at my kids if they would just listen. I wouldn't have to have my needs met by someone else if my spouse was who they should be. I shouldn't have to take things from work if I were better paid. I shouldn't have to sit around my house with a bad attitude if it wasn't so boring around here. I wouldn't have to date a person who's not born again if God would provide me with a Christian. I wouldn't have to show, I would show love to my wife if she would just show me the respect that she should. Or I would show respect to my husband if he would show me the love that he should. Taking this truth to the bank, counting on it, starts with understanding, I am the problem. I am the problem. But secondly, I don't have to live this way. I don't have to live this way. Because the lie of the enemy says you do have to live that way. I want you to notice that the sphere of sin's reign here is in our mortal bodies with the result that we obey our body's evil desires. And you could 
restate evil desires as God's God-given natural desires taken outside of what it means to honor him with them, taken into evil territory. Our sinful nature is directly connected with our sinful desires, our desire to serve ourselves rather than to serve the Lord. Those desires to meet our needs, God-given needs in ways that dishonor him. Um, Romans 13, 14 tells us, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He's speaking here out of the life that we have the opportunity to live in Christ. Galatians 5, 16 and 24 tell us, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Those who belong to Christ, verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Another way of saying it's nailed to the cross with Jesus. We don't have to obey it. We talked last week about how our sin nature is like a king that's been dethroned but it's still present, okay? When we are with Christ in his presence, we will no longer be in the presence of the temptation of sin. So those of us who have received Christ as our savior, we are truly unshackled. We are truly uh, removed from the power of sin over us, but we're not removed from its presence. So it's kind of like our lives are like a huge castle, and every now and then we walk down this hallway and we hear this psst, psst. And it's that dethroned king, you know, that's still lurking the hallways. And he's like, get me back on the throne. Come on. It'll be fun. I'll do whatever you want. But he's like a dethroned king just wandering the halls of the castle of our lives. He doesn't belong on the throne any longer we're being told. We desire good things. We desire pleasure, comfort, security, physical or emotional fulfillment, a sense of success, a sense of appreciation. And often though, we are willing to take these things outside of the God-honoring boundaries that he put on them, which means to sin, to have these good desires met. And this should be a sign to us that our sin nature is reigning. He's on the throne. He got on there somehow. Or as Paul talks about in chapter 13, or or in uh, Galatians 5, I'm sorry, we're no longer living by the spirit. We're living by the flesh. It's one thing to understand that our sin nature doesn't belong on the throne of our lives. It's another thing completely, though, to obey the command to stop allowing it to do so, right? As I mentioned, it feels like we are in control of our lives when our sin nature is back on the throne. Sometimes we believe that we can't live without something that provides us with one or more of these good things. 
And that's when that thing or practice has become an addiction, when we think we can't live without it. And this is sometimes what it takes sometimes, realizing I've taken this good thing way out of its context in my life, and it's taking over everything else. Sometimes that's God's signal, hey, you are running your life into the ground. But I want you to look at those moments with the promise that it doesn't have to be that way. And that's what Paul is telling us. That's what God is telling us through the book of Romans. So the first step is to correctly understand the situation. It does not have to be that way. We're dealing with a dethroned sin nature. And second step is to return to the reign of Christ. That's what he's talking about when he says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now he talks about the parts of our body and and instruments of wickedness or instruments of righteousness here. Notice that it's, it's these parts of our bodies that we so often have to return to the reign of Christ. As a part of repentance, we're called to no longer serve ourselves with our bodies, but rather to serve Christ with them. The picture here that's being painted is, to help us to understand, it's, he's painting a picture here of helping us to understand what happens when we get our, ourselves or our sin nature off of the throne. I think of, of, maybe you've seen pictures or you've seen this in movies or you've, or you've heard this described in books of, of how a throne room would have the king sitting on it and he'd be surrounded by dukes and, and lords and generals and all of these men and, and advisors would have people under them that with a word from them, It would change movements of battalions or it would change whole decisions and and the way that a whole swath of the kingdom is being run. And they're just waiting on direction from the king sitting on the throne. The The picture here is like a kingdom's army switching from fighting from one side to the other because the king has changed. Okay, so the picture is like the king, the, the sin nature is dethroned. Christ is put back on the throne and, and allowed to reign. And then what would happen then is, of course, the new king would say, General, move your men from one side of the battle to the other. They are now fighting for me. And that's the picture here when he says... Do not offer the parts of your body as instruments or literally weapons of wickedness. Offer the parts of your body to Christ, to him, as instruments of righteousness. And the picture then is Christ taking the throne and saying, you fight for me now. Hear the understanding in this. Because we've asked ourselves before, how is it that I can go so quickly from walking with Christ and seeking to do his will and seeking to serve him and then boom, I'm serving myself. And the message in this is saying, listen, get yourself off the throne, get the sin nature off the throne and 
I'll switch you back over. Do you hear the hope in this? Do you hear the grace in this? And the mercy and understanding what it means to walk in this world full of temptation, full of the challenge of walking with Christ? When we replace our sin nature or ourselves with Christ on the throne of our hearts, it should affect our lives. We should stop following our sinful desires and to follow God's desires, allowing his desires to become our desires. This is kind of the replace part of effective repentance. Okay? We talked about this before. Effective repentance is first about repenting and realizing that I've been heading in one direction with my life and it's the exact opposite of where I need to be heading in and, <clears throat> and coming under that conviction and, and confessing that to the Lord and, and seeking to renew our fellowship with him, to, to put that forgiveness into effect completely in our relationship with him and, and walking in that forgiveness. And, but then it's an issue of replacing those lies that we've been believing or that practice that we've been involved with, replacing it with what is right. And that, that's what he's talking about here. No longer offer the, the parts of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Not from wickedness, instruments of wickedness, to instruments of righteousness. It's that replacing idea of effective repla- repentance. And then the third part that we talked about of effective repentance is repeat. Repent, replace, repeat. Because it's going to need to happen again and again and again. This is where we need to seek counsel. This is where we need to seek accountability. It can happen. We can grow. We can, we can get past things that keep tripping us up over and over and over again. That's what we're being reminded of here. That's what we're being informed of. And it's important for us to remind ourselves and to know that because the lies of the enemies are, oh, you're just where you're at. This is just who you are. It's never going to change. Notice God's grace in the manner of our presenting ourselves to him. Where he says, offer yourselves to God as those have been brought from death to life because that's how he sees us in all of that. In all of this, he's saying, hey, you've been brought from death to life. You're my child. You're, my, you're clothed in my righteousness. You are, you are as good as gold with me. Bring yourself to me in that way. Not as a traitor who's returned to be tried for treason, to serve his time, and then maybe have a relationship again with the rightful king after proving his loyalty. We're called back to live out of who we are in Christ. Those who have been brought from death to life. What a good and gracious God we serve. You can say amen to that. We're told to get back to who we are in Christ. Share with you a quote from Paul David Tripp that I really appreciate. I think it applies well to this. He says, you will only get what God has given you when you understand that you need much more than a system of answers. 
what you actually need is a redeemer. Why? Because only a redeemer can rescue you from you. And so God didn't simply offer you legal forgiveness. Praise him that he didn't, that he did that. Okay, he did offer us legal forgiveness, but not simply legal forgiveness. Praise him that he did that. But he offered you something much more profound. He offered you himself. And so when we turn to him in repentance as those who've been made alive from the dead, we come back to him as his child. We, we, we have been his child all along. We've been redeemed. We were given a relationship with our Redeemer. And we're just putting that redemption more into practice. It's getting back to who we are in him. We live out of our behavior, okay? Um, How are we able to know when we are allowing ourselves to be ruled by our sinful nature? Or, Or how can we see... It, in our loved ones, in the loved ones in our lives, how, when it's a, you know, when it's, how are we able to, to work this out? Okay, and, and those of you that have been here uh, for a while, you've seen this picture before, and, and, and um, it's really for me, being a student of the scriptures, um, in Bible college and in seminary, and, and not that that means a whole lot, although it's a blessing to me every day and week, <clears throat> um, to bring together what it means to counsel people and what it means to repent in my own life and to grow, and also to bring together what, is, what does this look like in biblical history and, and what does it look like in all cultures um, because... because I, um, it's all tied together. God works from the same principles for all of time with all of people. I fully believe that. And so, so my picture that I use so often, and some of you are going to be like, oh yeah, I've seen this before, you know, is the comparison between um, what, what throughout Scripture and throughout history we have had two options. And that is man-centered idolatry and God-centered worship. God's enemy has always offered a fake form of worship, which has always been man-centered idolatry, putting us in the middle and, and everything revolving around us. Okay? And... Um, <clears throat> where we usually have a hang-up of connecting all this talk about idols in the Old Testament, and Paul picks it up a little bit in Romans and in a little bit in 1 Corinthians, we usually get this hang-up of, of but how is, um, I don't have idols in my life. I don't bow down to my TV. I don't bow down to my car. I don't bow down to my grandchildren. You know, how, how can these things be idols sometimes? Okay. And I found that the hang-up that we have in understanding this is we think that um, a person is serving the idol in that relationship, okay? And here's where um, 
my missions training and folk religion study kind of comes into this. We have this idea that when somebody's bowing down to an idol, that they are serving that idol, that they think my life is just meant to be dedicated to this idol. Okay? That's actually not what's happening. They're serving themselves. They're going to the idol to get something that they need to meet their life's needs. Okay? They're serving themselves. They're using the idol in order to get what they think they need. Okay? I I've, I've think that the more accurate picture in our culture would be a vending machine. Okay? We treat, we have a tendency rather than to live in God-centered worship with all of our lives in which we offer to him and it's solely a sacrifice of worship to him. And I love that picture that it burns up, it turns to smoke, it goes away and we say, Lord, I hope you were pleased by that. Okay? We walk away empty-handed. That's always in contrast with living Life, like everything around us, is a vending machine, okay? I put my time in at work so that I will get that promotion. I put my time in with my wife so that I will get what I want from her. I put my time in with my kids. I give them attention. I give them, I take them to every sports practice and every, you know, tutor and things like that because I want them to get a scholarship. You know, we treat life like a vending machine, where I take, we're meant to take what God has given to us to offer him our money, our time, our energy, our, our attention, our love, and offer it to him as an act of worship for him. We're meant to approach our wives and say, I, Lord, I want to serve her as you have called me to. I want to love her as you have called me to and take this as an offering of worship to you. That's how we were meant to live. But when, we're, but when we're living by the way that our enemy has offered to us for all of time, when we're living in, in man-centered idolatry, we treat our wives like this. Look, I talked to you for 30 minutes when I came home, and I, you know, I told you that the meal was nice. I rubbed your shoulders as you were doing dishes. It's 10 o'clock. I am expecting something. You know, or we treat our kids like I cook and I clean and I go to work and I bring home the bacon and I come home to squabbling. That's not what I should be getting for all this. Okay, so, so the idols are still there. They're just Western idols. Okay? The change happens in here. Okay? In the question of, am I going to serve the Lord or am I going to serve myself with my life? As I mentioned, we are meant to live with everything flowing out of God-centered worship. When we, when we are allowing Christ to sit on the throne of our hearts, what that looks like in our life is it's all an act of worship to him. It means if I'm standing up here with Christ on the throne of my heart, then I'm saying what I'm saying to you for him. Not to get something from you, not to to hope that you like me because of this or to get you to change. 
or something like that. When we are living to serve ourselves, when we or our sinful nature are sitting on the throne of our hearts, we treat everything like a vending machine. And it's, as God is so gracious, the signal to us is when we get angry with it. Because what happens when you put money into the vending machine and you don't get what you want? You kick it. And there's times when I've sat in counseling with people and they're like, this person is treating me like this and this is going on and I'm so frustrated about this. And I'll look at them and say, you realize you're kicking the vending machine. And your answer is not to change this person, this person, this person, this person. The answer is to change in here. The answer is to get off the throne of your life and to get Christ back on the throne. And what's amazing is when effective repentance happens, we see so much of our life differently. It's amazing is that God really can change so much in our life just by allowing him to sit on that throne again. And that's what it means to return to the reign of Christ. Okay, we have a third step here. And that is to look ahead with confidence. God tells us something so awesome here. For sin shall not be your master. That's not a prediction. That's like a, folks, it's not intended to be your master. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to change you. It's not without our participation. But what a promise. Sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. I think of this term master here in terms of our connection to Christ and his death, where in verse 9 of this chapter it says, For we know that Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And if we've participated with him in that death and in that resurrection to a new life, then just as sin no longer has mastery over Christ, meaning he no longer bears the weight of sin on the cross, we no longer have to be mastered by sin either. In the same way that Jesus is never to be under that mastery, we're promised to never be under the mastery of sin, meaning you will not go back to it having the power over you the way that it did. You might live that way, but it's not true. I think of, um, if you've ever seen the movie The World Trade Center or you've seen other movies in which, in which someone is saved from under a pile of rubble or they finally find someone that has been hidden away somewhere and, and, and you know, it's all centered around uh, finding this person that's been kidnapped or, or, or um, injured or something like that. I, I love those moments with that first person that finds them. And what's one of the first things that they said? They say, I am not going to leave you. That's this statement here. That's what God is saying. It's like what he, what he says to the Philippians. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, not without your help, not without your involvement, but that's God's plan. I'm not going to leave you. Then he makes this interesting statement. Because you are not under law, but under grace. To be under law is to be left to our fleshly efforts, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. To be under grace means everything about our relationship with God is centered around our grace-based relationship with him. 
as he says earlier, as those who have been made alive from the dead. We exist and thrive because of God's riches being poured out on Christ at Christ's expense. God's riches being poured out on us at Christ's expense. I want to share with you a story from Harry uh, Ironside. He was a veteran missionary, and this was written in one of his memoirs in 1945 just talking about the relationship of law and grace. He says this, he says, Some years ago, I had a school of young Indian men and women who came to my home in Oakland, California, from various tribes in northern Arizona. One of these was a Navajo young man of unusually keen intelligence. One Sunday evening, we went, he went with me to one of our young people's meetings. The subject was law and grace. There were not very clear they were not very clear about it, meaning in the study. And finally, one, of, one turned to the Native American man and said, I wonder whether our Indian friend has anything to say about this. He rose to his feet and he said this, Well, my friends, I have been listening very carefully because I'm here to learn and I, and I, so that I can take this back to my people. I do not understand all that you've talked about and I do not think that you do yourselves. But concerning this law and grace business, let me see if I can make it clear. I think it's like this. When Mr. Ironside brought me from my home, we took the longest railroad journey I ever took. We got out at Barstow, and there I saw the most beautiful railroad station and hotel I have ever seen. I walked all around and saw at one end a sign that said, Do not spit here. I looked at that sign and then looked at the ground and saw many had spitted there. And before, I think I, bef- before, and before I think what I am doing at that moment, I had spitted myself. Isn't that strange when the sign says, do not spit here? So I come to Oakland and go to the home of a lady who invited me to dinner there. And I am, I'm in the nicest home I have ever been in. Such beautiful furniture and carpets. I hate to step on it. I sank into a comfortable chair. And the lady said, now, John, you sit there where I go, while I go out and see whether the maid is, has dinner ready. I look around at the beautiful pictures, at a grand, grand piano. I walk all around these rooms. I'm looking for a sign. The sign I'm looking for. Do not spit here. But I look around at these beautiful drawing rooms and I cannot find a sign like this. I think what a pity when this is such a beautiful home to have people spitting all over it. Too bad they don't put a sign. But I looked all over the carpet and I could not find that anyone had spitted there. What a strange thing. Where the sign says, do not spit, a lot of people spitted. Where there was no sign at all in a beautiful home, nobody spitted. (laughs) Now I understand that sign is law, but inside the home it is grace. They love their beautiful home and they want to keep it clean. They do not need a sign to tell them to do so. I think that explains this law and grace business. He sat down, a murmur of approval, Ironside writes. A murmur of approval went around the room. The leader exclaimed, 
I think that is the best illustration of law and grace I have ever heard. The idea here is that a relationship of grace with God, this is the relationship that we live in with him, and we live in it out of love for him, out of gratefulness for what he's done, out of relationship with him. This is opposed to a relationship based on law in which we seek to live for Christ out of our flesh and out of rules. Galatians 3.3 reminds us, as Paul asks the Galatians who had gone off track, he says, are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Which he meant by following the law. So to apply what we've learned today, by some means of the flesh alone is futile. That would be law, okay? To say, all right, I can do it. That's what the passage said, right? I can do it. I'm gonna slap myself in the face whenever I think that thought. Or I'm gonna slam my thumb in the door whenever I yell at my kids. The reason why God can say confidently sin shall not be master over you is because we are under grace. Because he's saying, you have every freedom to come back to me as my child and find my strength and find a wealth of help. As we're called to come confidently before the throne of grace to find grace and help in times of need. Confidently. We apply what we learned today by searching our relationships, searching our use of our time, searching our strong desires, and asking God to show us what we're using for ourselves, how we're living in man-centered idolatry, believing the lie, if I just give a little bit more to this area, I'll get what I want. It'll satisfy. When we go to the throne room of our hearts, and unseat ourselves, we don't come back beaten down and ashamed. We're returning to reclaim living out of who we are in Christ. We welcome Christ's reign again with the joy of knowing that we are glorifying him by doing so. We're doing exactly what he's asked us to do. And we should also keep in mind that he will bring us back to this spot as often as he needs to. I love what the poet said, and I've read this before to you. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for our grace relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, that even now in this passage when you're commanding us, to no longer allow sin to reign. When you're telling us sin shall not be our master, you're reminding us that it's because we walk in your grace. It's because we walk as your child. It's because we walk in your total forgiveness. And it's because you have as much grace and mercy as we need, far more. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Pray, Lord God, that you'd allow us to tap into that and first by repenting of a living for ourselves. Pray, Lord, that you'd allow us to live out of 
real effective repentance and to find the joy of that. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.